Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the writer, journalist and comedian Viv Groskop, whose new book is a sort of self-help guide, I suppose. Don't be but afraid of saying self-help, Sam. I'm, it's okay. Okay. It's, it is a self-help guide, but a very unusual one. It's called The Anna Karenina Fix, Life Lessons from Russian Literature, which seems a very weird thing to do because everything I know of Russian literature says that by the end the characters are all either kind of mad or they've shot themselves or they've been shot or they've had their orchard cut down or they're sent off to jail <laughs> forever or you know they're hit by I mean there is literally there is a train on the front cover of this book and as anyone who knows Anna Karenina will know or has even read its Wikipedia entry trains feature in a plot not in a good way yes not in a self-helpy way Yes, no. I mean uh, it well, fixes you, Anna Karenina, but it, you know fixes yes, her good. You indeed it does. That's a special kind of Anna Karenina fix. That's interesting that you should say that. That's the only kind of fix I hadn't thought of. I thought of this as the Anna Karenina fix, as in this is my fix. You know, this is my drug. These books. I found myself in these books when I was a teenager, especially because I have this weird name, Groskop, G R O S K O P. There was no explanation in my childhood about where this name came from. I later realised because my parents have slight UKIP tendencies. So we didn't want to talk about the fact that we might be a bit foreign. And it was never explained. And then I discovered all of these Russian novels and thought, oh, they always have strange names too. This can be my world. And so I lost myself. your intro to Russian was the fact that people had funny names. Yeah, exactly. And I identified with this and I loved it. So that was my fix. And then later on, the truth came out about my name. Of course, uh, we're not remotely, well, we are remotely foreign, but we're really just Jewish. It's a Jewish name, it's a Jewish-Polish name. And my great-great-grandfather came from a part of Poland that was under Russian occupation. He would never have been a Russian speaker. Uh, he would have been a Yiddish speaker. My name, Groskop, means fathead uh, oh, in Yiddish. Oh, so it's like, like the German. You were worried at the of what it's going to be Gorsakov. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I then was very disappointed because I'd acquired this incredible passion and love of, of Russian literature. I learned to speak Russian. I studied at university. I lived in Moscow. I used to work for Russian Vogue for a long time. And it was become a huge part of what I thought was my identity. And people would frequently say to me, you must be Russian with that name. And I would just sort of go along with it because I did speak Russian by that point. And then I had to turn to these books as a fix to fix myself, uh, to look for solace. So I agree that Russian literature is incredibly dark and depressing. And for me, the challenge in this book was to try and translate to people what it is that I find so comforting about these books and to try and analyse why they're so beautiful. Because they are beautiful. You know, people love them. People have an incredible affection towards Anna Karenina in particular. A Chekhov is also here. Three Sisters is the play that I feature here. And people have this, uh, even a warmth towards Dostoevsky, who's completely in real life mad, as well as all of his characters being mad. And I wanted to explore where that warmth comes from and what lessons we can draw from this real contradiction, actually. Because I think the Russian literature version of self help is it's real talk you know it's not Oprah Winfrey although I do compare Tolstoy and Oprah Winfrey at yes, one you stage have, here. Tolstoy himself as he said in your introduction he wrote his own sort of self-help book who says 
rather than, you know, love everybody, says hate yourself. Yes, well, uh, Tolstoy collected quotes, self-help quotes of the sort that you would see on Instagram now for the Calendar of Wisdom, uh, which was published eventually in, in 1912. And a lot of it is Buddhist wisdom. A lot of it is Russian philosophers from the 19th century. And some of it is his own sayings, things like, if you want to change the world, first change yourself. And these are things that we've become so used to and we just ignore them because they're platitudes and they're part of the whole self-help movement that's been vilified despite it earning its practitioners millions. And I thought this is really interesting territory to explore because there's something profound about this if Tolstoy found meaning in it. So where do we go with that? So that was what I wanted to explore. And yeah, you're right. His self-help is is hilarious. It's basically hate yourself, be mean to yourself, <laughs> don't eat any meat, don't yes, drink any alcohol. He himself as an enemy of baked goods, which yes. is a very poignant thing. <laughs> he only liked eating eggs. This is in the latter part of his life, Tolstoy. Uh, there's a wonderful Russian book by an author called Pavel Basinski, who wrote a book called Escape from Paradise, which is about Tolstoy leaving his family home in the last days of his life because he just can't stand it anymore. And this was the first book that came out about 10 years ago and won, won a lot of prizes in Russia. And it was the first book that had examined Tolstoy the man, for a Russian audience because that is something that's seen as being people very sniffy about looking at Tolstoy the man they think you should appreciate him as a writer don't get fixated on the biography that's all a bit shallow but this book was almost self-consciously shallow and looked at Tolstoy's relationship with his wife and his children and it in particular looked at his daily habits and his daily habits all revolved around avoiding baked goods and eating lots of eggs (laughs) you know the kind of purely you know you shouldn't put the biography and things it's surely countermanded by the well, fiction. I mean, you know, Levin and Anna Karenina is very much understood as a kind of proxy for Tolstoy, isn't it? And, oh, know. yeah, absolutely. Yes. Which is why from the moment I first started studying Russian properly and I was 18 and going to university at Cambridge, I was at Selwyn College studying Russian from scratch. And I didn't come from a family background where anyone had been to university and I didn't quite know what to expect. But I was surprised that it seemed that you weren't really allowed to say, but what was Tolstoy's life at that time? And why did he make himself into Levin? And in real life, what was he doing that was actually like Levin? It was something that you just touched upon. And then you were supposed to let it go and analyse the metaphors and the allegories and all of this stuff. And what I want to try and do with this book is to bridge that gap between academic understanding of literature and the things we're really interested in as readers, which is, you know, was he on subsisting on an entirely egg-based diet when he was writing this? And if so, what does that mean? Because that's fascinating. Well, I spent a lot of time on the loo. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. And, and the way that he... I mean, this was actually the egg stuff came in. That's what it's officially known as in academic circles, the egg stuff. Uh, that came in latter life for him because he renounced these books. You know, he renounced Anna Karenina and War and Peace and developed this very... Dalai Lama style approach to life and to his own work and he decided that these books were completely frivolous and ridiculous. I'm, trying to, I'm dimly trying to recall wasn't there a particular sort of crazy thing around his death that the Countess Tolstoy was either sort of rushing back to try and take possession of his manuscripts and he had this sort of slightly Svengali like figure who yeah, that's right. was Field competing Mosk. with yes. him. Yeah. So in the latter part of his life, he amassed these disciples around him. Or oh, I don't know whether you can say that he did it or they just came and he was powerless to 
stop the whole thing turning a bit culty. But there became a there was a war really between the family and the disciples, the Tolstoyans. And he had lots of, you know, he had a correspondence with Gandhi at one point. And he was very interested in mystical ideas. And he was excommunicated from the Russian Orthodox Church, although he was actually very religious. So there are all sorts of problems around the idea of him being a spiritual leader, as opposed to a novelist. And there were various members of the family who were into the idea of him being a spiritual leader and others who were into the idea of him being a novelist. And his wife, Sofia Andreevna, was very much of the school of, you're a great novelist, let's just go with that. I'm sure that's exactly how she put it. And also the family earned loads of money from the novels. And although they're a very rich family and they lived on this estate, Yasnaya Polyana, which he inherited when he was in his late teens, they didn't really need money. But, you know, they had a very, very big family and, and they're constantly having to give out money to all kinds of people begging from them and all of this. So she was always fixated on the the money side of things and on his reputation as a great novelist but Tolstoy is more interested in spiritual questions and believed all of this to be self-aggrandizing egotistical wrong and that's why as this brilliant Pavel Basinski book describes it's now in in translation I really recommend it for this last two three week period of his life he he walked away from his own house he left his family he left his wife some people think he must have had an awareness that he was going to die and he just wanted to be away from all of these arguments and of course then part of the story of this book is that they all then start chasing after him and it's who can get to him first because they all want him to change the arrangements and renounce one side or the other and he almost purposefully I think left it more or less unresolved. So with Tolstoy sort of as your guiding light I mean are you sort of slightly trying to reconcile these two sides of Tolstoy by saying here's the novels as a kind of spiritual fix. Absolutely. And this is where this idea of self-help comes in because he gives beautiful lessons for life. There's a chapter on Anna Karenina in this book and also a chapter on War and Peace. And it's actually in War and Peace that his most sincere and useful lessons come through very simple things love your family appreciate what's in the moment a lot of this comes through the character Platon Karataev who is this beggar sort of surf character who appears very fleetingly but imparts these lessons and he's eating a potato whilst he's I'm very into all the food aspects as you can tell Sam he's eating a potato while he's imparting these and putting salt on it and this is very significant and in modern parlance not for the spectator podcast listeners I'm sure but for perhaps the Instagram generation this is a mindfulness moment and his basic self-help lesson is is be mindful. So when you've got a potato and you put salt on it, savour that. That's the truth of life. That's the moment. Life is a salty potato. Life is a salty potato. Perhaps with some egg afterwards. Possibly. Perhaps. So, yeah, that's really interesting for me to try and reconcile these sides of this very wistful, spiritual, almost Buddhist look of life that's in Tolstoy's work, but also the self-flagellation and the contradictions in his own life. Can you also suggest a little, which I suppose... And loads of venereal diseases when he was much younger. That too. (laughs) But you also suggest that there is a kind of, which is, is perhaps an old argument about literature, that even when the stuff that it describes is very dark and the transformative power of the way it's described... I mean, you suggest a little bit in your chapter on Anna Karenina that, you know, Tolstoy believed that God was sort of punishing her for running off with Vronsky, but that actually his sympathy as a writer is drawn into making her this extraordinarily full and sympathetic creator. And 
you know, in the same way Milton became of the devil's part without knowing it, that Tolstoy couldn't keep to his sort of divine scheme. Yes. And well, he kind of loves Anna Karenina. Yes. Well, this is the theory I've come up with after multiple readings. I couldn't quite reconcile how attractive this character is with her fate and how beautiful the novel is, which is really her story told through her eyes, more or less. Okay, we have some digressions from Levin and a, a lot of other you know, beautiful subplots. But it's really Anna Karenina's story and it's supposed to be negative. But I don't think you come away with a negative feeling. You have a lot of warm feelings towards her. And to me, I couldn't quite reckon, for me, I couldn't quite reconcile that with the fact that he'd, Tolstoy had then rejected this novel. And the way I've understood it through rereading and thinking about it is in the same way that Flaubert said, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. Very similar fate as well. Again, a supposedly adulterous, terrible, disastrous character who reached a terrible end. And yet, wonderful, richly observed person who we really understand. You yeah. know, if you say by the standards of the Russian novel, Emma Bovary's end is kind of counts as catching a break. Yeah, exactly. She gets it easy. Yeah, she gets a nice fix. Exactly. A nice, yeah, lots of actual drug fixes before she finally expires rather than just a train slamming in her face. Spoiler alert. Yes. So that was really interesting to me that Flaubert very openly said, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. Whereas, I don't know because of where people were up to with understanding of psychology and self-awareness perhaps it wouldn't have crossed Tolstoy's mind to think this character is actually me which is why I wonder why Levin is almost so self-consciously Tolstoy because he's thinking oh I really hope no one thinks that I'm like Anna Karenina because she's terrible I'll make Levin really like me Yes, exactly. This is well. just my theory, Sam. It's just a theory I'm Could putting be, out It's there. not just Tolstoy as well. I mean, you, again, so keep the mood of gloom. You include Anna Akhmatova, whose name itself means like, bitter, doesn't it? Anna Akhmatova is not a bringer of joy, traditionally. She's not seen as that. But for me, again, poetry is just so beautiful. As I say in the book, even in translation, her poetry is really beautiful, I think. The translations I uh, recommend, particularly uh, Judith um, Hemshmeyer's translations of her work, re- you really get the sense of how she writes in Russian and it's incomparable, it's extraordinary. But yes, like you say, the most tragic life imaginable. And yet she was, I don't want to say she was full of joy. She was not full of joy. She was full of almost a sort of sarcastic joy that she would find very dark amusing things to say about the fact that the KGB had just been round there's a scene where she's meeting with Mandelstam the poet Osip Mandelstam and he's in really dire straits because he's written a poem about Stalin and everyone knows about it he's been stupid enough to tell it to lots of people or brave enough however you want to call it and his his days are numbered she knows it he's not quite so aware and firstly he goes to meet her at the station And I think her her train is late. And he says, you're so late, you're almost like Anna Karenina. (laughs) Which he means it's as if you've arrived from the 19th century, but also has a double meaning. So I love that. And then when they go to his flat, it's about to be searched. They don't know this, but everything is bugged all the time. They know that. This is in the late 1930s. He he, He goes around all his neighbors to try and find some food for Anna Akhmatova. 
So he found, he finds a boiled egg. Eggs feature prominently in this book. If you're a fan of eggs, you'll be a fan of this book. Excellent. So he finds a boiled Selling egg and they put this boil they get a tarpaulin, they put it over the the cooker because they don't have a kitchen table. So they make the cooker into a table. They put the boiled egg in the middle of it and then at that moment, the KGB arrive and they search the flat, they take papers, they turn everything upside down. And Akhmatova just sits there very regally, as she always does, in, in her black silk gown with her amazing haughty hook nose, the her Virginia Woolf yes, nose. It's a very famous portrait of her, isn't it? Isn't oh, there's it? a Modigliani Yes, yeah, Modigliani, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah, so, and then at the end, when they've gone, I'm paraphrasing here, but she looks at Mandelstam and says, so are you going to eat the egg or am I? Which I just, I love that. She doesn't literally say that, but it's that feeling. And Akhmatova is all about surviving the darkness. And that's what I love. And to me, that's and that that is proper self-help. And so when you say, go through this, that's distinctively Russian in mm. character, is this idea of how you cope with adversity rather than how you make yourself the yeah, see, look, Akhmatova's knocking at the door. The ghost of Akhmatova, yes. Yeah, the ghost of Akhmatova is, is, is berating me for paraphrasing Sorry for the background her. noise. There are lots of very happy Russians outside. Yes. <laughs> All clamouring to get in. Yes. Yeah, I'm exploring this distinctive Russianness at the moment in another context as well. I've just made a documentary for Radio 4 called It's Just a Joke, Comrade, 100 Years of Russian Satire. And in that, we've been exploring what's Russian about that sense of humour? And the question is the same answer for literature. And I think it's about surviving this darkness. And you see it in particular in Gogol, actually. There's a chapter on Gogol where his own life was very, very difficult. There's now quite a lot of evidence that he was gay and he couldn't accept it or wasn't able to be open about it. And yet his work, Dead Souls in particular, is hilariously funny. It's like Dickens, only really, really funny. And that comes from these very sarcastic, cynical observations of character types. You know, the nasty local bureaucrat with a ridiculous moustache. And it's the Russian quality, I think, is this very playful black humour. And that's what I'm always looking for in these writers and that I find very easily. And there's a, there's a sort of character to that that I think you don't, necessarily get in another literature and that is what makes the russians so although they were actually when you come down to it they're all very different to each other i was gonna say is there a, is there a change between i mean you're focusing mostly on sort of the classics most of which are the 19th century i mean you talk about akhmatova and you know some people into the 20th century but do you think is it your view that russian literature has kind of kept that quality in the post-Soviet era, it's so difficult to talk about this. So, so not Pechorin, um, Pelevin, Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's also give a little mention to Pechorin and Lermontov, well, hero of our time, a well, useful hero not in this. Yes, book, but you sadly. don't put Lermontov in there. No, no Lermontov. There's a carpe diem, surely, in hero of our time. If there is indeed. Done, yes, you know. heroic moments. Well, I hope I'm going to get lots of responses from readers saying, "Why haven't you got Brothers Karamazov? Why haven't you got the possessed?" Or, you know, so on and so on. But I had to choose eleven that were my favourites but that's a great question Sam what would have happened if there were no revolution what would have happened to Russian literature I've got Bulgakov Master and Margarita in this book I've got Sol- Solzhenitsyn One Day in the Life of Ivan yeah. Denisovich another These... life lesson where he actually begins in the gulag you know? yes fun fun life lessons so optimistic yes, I noticed that all of them have don't at the, you know they're all couched in negative the subtitles are always don't get run over by a train <laughs> 
don't <laughs> think things are going to be better in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a form of self-help, is it not? If, if a it negative is, one. Yes. Don't fall but, in love um, with your best friend's wife. Don't kill off old ladies for money. <laughs> as if we need that advice well the Russians certainly needed it I think (laughs) but the thing about this uh, change in literature is that in some ways you could say that up until 1917 Russia is following more or less a similar trajectory to other great world literatures French, English, American and developing along similar lines which is I think it's fair enough to compare uh, Tolstoy and, and Flaubert but then once you get in past 1917, everything is in response to the system. It's hidden. So People... I suppose in the 19th century, there's more of that kind of dealing with, which of course other European literature's got into of what are the conditions of working class people and, you know, you've got the sort of lower depths and you've got Hugo and Balzac and all that stuff. And all, but then it yes. just takes a turn sideways because yes, you've got and, totalitarianism. And, and sure. Yes, before 1917, the novels can be, and, and Chekhov's plays can and all poetry can be about the human condition which is what we expect literature to be about and and to help us understand after 1917 it's about the human condition under soviet rule which is a law unto itself so that was interesting to explore that difference and uh, Zhivago uh, Pasternak Dr Zhivago is an interesting one in that because I think he kind of bridges that gap you know he writes a 19th century novel about the Soviet experience and lots of people have hated that novel almost for that reason that it doesn't quite seem to work in its time it feels curiously old-fashioned some people think it's really cheesy but I wanted to reinstate the reputation of this novel because I think Dr. Schwager is really beautiful I think if you read it as a series of interlinked short stories it's, it's still a fantastic read and it's not for some people I think Zhivago suffers from not being Master and Margarita by Bulgakov in in that whilst it's not tolerant of the system, it's not a huge critique. It's not all about critiquing the system. So I think we have to be grateful that Dostoevsky and Tolstoy were not born after 1917 because who knows what mess they would have created. Do you think that there's a continuity? I mean, you know, the drastic end of the Soviet experiment, you've got this one disjunction, which is the beginning of the whole Soviet period, which obviously chops, you know, the literature off and diverts it into another thing. Did the end of the Soviet experiment have that same kind of, I don't know, what do you call it, sort of epistemic break? Do you suddenly lose the continuity and are they trying to reinvent a... I mean, I don't know very much about contemporary Russian literature, but there's an absurdist strand in it, as I understand. Yes, there is. It's very difficult, I think, to talk at the moment about post-Soviet literature because there just hasn't been enough time and I know from talking to Boris Akunin about this, who writes the Arist Fandorin mysteries, which are almost like a Russian Sherlock, that he believes really great writers during this time now will go to the past and be safe in the past or maybe even explore the Soviet experience because it's supposedly over. Uh, arguably under Putin, it isn't really over, but that's a whole other conversation. And that it's very difficult to express anything about the modern condition in the way that perhaps we would expect somebody like Ian McEwan to do here. We wouldn't expect Ian McEwan to write only about the 19th century or the Second World War, although I'm sure he could tackle those things and probably has done brilliantly. But he wouldn't be, he would, he would feel fine about writing a novel about Brexit. Whereas I think the conventional wisdom is about contemporary Russian novelists is that 
it's not about censoring and I think that's a mistake that we make is to think oh they can't write about that because then they would be suppressed by Putin I mean probably there's a grain of truth in that but also it's more interested in journalists than novelists I think isn't it? it that's true but I think for novelists they want to examine things that they understand and feel they have something to say about and Judging from people that I've spoken to, people feel so ambivalent about this Putin era. And there hasn't been a book that has come out that expresses that ambivalence. And that's interesting. And possibly that ambivalence would have an international audience, but not a homegrown audience. Do you think it's coming a bit on the fringes? I'm thinking people like Andrei Kirchhoff, you know, who's a Ukrainian-Russian Yeah, you know, certainly. Although Kurkov is from a dissident tradition. Yeah. So it's about moving away from that dissident tradition as well. It's going to be really interesting to see. I think it will take another 20 or 30 years for there to be some great Russian novel that is appreciated in Russia and appreciated abroad. Can I, just to take us into the happier territory of the, the 19th century again... You know, I'm just going to use Chekhov. You've got the three sisters, haven't you, as your thing, and that's the to Moscow, to Moscow, to Moscow. I mean, what's the life lesson you get from that? Because, you know, arguably they might have been better off if they'd gone to Moscow, mightn't they? Yes, that's a very good point. Well, they desperately wanted to go there, didn't they? Well, the life lesson for me is don't be, again, it's a don't, sorry about that, <laughs> but don't be convinced that the grass is greener. Because the whole lesson of three sisters is... They don't really need to go to Moscow at all. They need to sort out things where they are. And they keep saying, oh, if only we'll go to Moscow, everything will be fine, in exactly that voice. Yes, doing a geographical. Like yeah, little, uh, everything will be fine. And of course, it's not fine where they are. So it's a warning about having a lack of self-awareness and also about having a lack of agency. Because I think there's a slight feminist thing going on in three sisters because none of the male characters say oh I wish we could go to Moscow because of course if they wanted to go to Moscow because they're men they could probably set it up so that they can but the women can't or they're they're perhaps in an era where they're starting to be able to take some control of their lives and have some influence but not really but it's about that's a novel about refusing to accept your current conditions and assuming that it's either someone else's fault or that if you were somewhere else everything would be fine and for me, that's something that we all do all of the time. You know, we look, at, it's about comparison. You know, we look at what someone else has got and think, oh, they must have such a great life. Well, no, they don't actually. You just don't know enough about them. Well, that's true. I suppose we should end by just saying that everybody's lives will be vastly improved by buying the Anna Karenina fix. They will. They will. And they will be reminded of the life-giving properties of eating eggs. Comrade Groskop, thank you very much. Thank you, Comrade Leith. <laughs>